You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, and welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today we are joined by an inspiring young leader in Australia's Cooperative Research Centre program. Claire Toblitz is the current CEO of the SmartCrete CRC, a role she accepted after first building another research centre, the Food Security CRC, from the ground up. Combined with time spent working for Oz Industry, these roles have given Claire a unique perspective on Australia's innovation ecosystem, and she is notably passionate about ensuring CRCs fulfil their stated goal of providing an effective bridge between research and industry in Australia. As part of the SmartCrete CRC, Claire is helping major players like Borrell, Brickworks and government infrastructure owners access the research and insights they need to reimagine how we make and use concrete, turning this often maligned construction material into a low-carbon, infinitely recyclable commodity that may yet take its place as one of the cornerstones of the circular economy. Claire Tubletz, welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. Thanks for having me, Leo. So Claire, we usually start by giving our guests a chance to do their own elevator pitch. How do you describe who you are and what you do? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I think the way that I would describe my career and what I do is um, I work in facilitating industry research collaboration. Um, It's something that I've done in most of my roles and um, it's something I'm really, really passionate about as well. I think there's huge untapped opportunity in our research sector. Uh, So I get really excited about the idea of how can we bring businesses into those collaborative relationships with our really high quality research and facilities across Australia. So yeah, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And um, I'm excited to be able to do that directly through a cooperative research centre Um, because it's just a fantastic place to create those innovative connections. Well, we're almost up to 50 episodes now, but I think you're our first Tasmanian guest, (laughs) amazingly. So can we take you back to that early life? What was it like growing up in in Tassie and and getting into this space? In Tassie, yeah, it was a fantastic place to grow up. Uh, I lived in Hobart with my family, and um, it's just a really beautiful, very quiet life. A bit of a small town mentality, so everyone really knows everyone. And obviously there are some challenges with that, but I think what's really great about it is Tassie really definitely has a mindset of community and supporting each other. And so a number of the opportunities that I've had over my life have really been because of my community and because people have thought about me and and have helped me to excel in certain areas. So yeah, I have a lot of love for Tassie, even though I moved to Sydney for career opportunities, it still definitely feels like home. And was this, I uh, guess, science and research part of your family environment or was it something you came to separately? Yeah. Uh, so my grandfather was an entomologist at CSIRO. Um, so I think he's always been a bit of an inspiration to me. Um, and when I was growing up, he would always share um, New Scientist magazines with me once he would finish with them. And I just I absolutely loved that world. Um, I guess the other side is the next generation. So my parents and all of their siblings, so everyone in the next generation of my family is a professional musician. Um, so quite different. And I know that there's a lot of correlations between music and maths and um, and the science disciplines in general. But for me, seeing my parents really working very hard in that professional musician career and evenings and weekends and I just knew that was never going to be for me. So I think I gravitated more towards science, not only to follow what my grandfather was doing, but also not to move into the creative arts space. 
So I guess that takes you about to the end of high school. You've sworn off music and decided for a career in science. And I think you studied at the University of Tasmania, looking into zoology and ecology. Was, was that the sort of fields that you thought you would work in for the rest of your career? Yeah, I don't think I really knew to start off with. I think uh, coming straight out of high school, one of my favourite subjects was biology in high school. And so thinking about where I wanted to go in university, um, I, I wasn't really sure what the career pathways would be. I really just followed my curiosity and what I was interested in. And so zoology, plant science, they were things that I was just fascinated by. Um, and so I just, I just picked it because I was interested in it. And I think the, the challenge for me going through my undergraduate years was I don't think there was a lot of explanation in terms of the possible career pathways. You know, looking back on it now, I can see that having a science degree is incredibly translatable. You know, it's, it's a hugely valuable degree from a whole range of different angles. And it's not necessarily just moving into an academic pathway. There are so many different applications for that degree and so many transferable skills that you learn. You know, when you think about critical thinking, the analytical skills that you have through a science degree, these are such transferable skills for so many different roles. The thing that I wish that I'd had more of is exposure to different career pathways and opportunities um, because I absolutely felt going through a zoology degree that my pathway would be into research science and that I would either stay with the university network or move into other registered research organisations like CSIRO. And unfortunately, as a, a graduate having a bachelor with honours, those career pathways don't really exist at that level. You know, you really mm. do need to go on to higher degree research. Um, and even then, it's only a select few that then actually stay in those research roles. So, um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience. And I absolutely loved my um, undergraduate time and um, the things that I learned. I just wish that I'd had a little bit more exposure to the plethora of career pathways that were actually available to me. So I was a bit more open-minded when I came out of university. Well, yeah, let's talk about where you did go then, because obviously you haven't pursued that academic career path, but you did find your feet in your career uh, with Oz Industry, which seems to be a very formative experience for you. Can you tell us a bit about Oz Industry as an organisation and how you came to be part of it? Yes, I have so much love for Oz Industry. So Oz Industry is the federal government's grant delivery agency. Um, at the time, it was in the Department of Industry. I believe it's still in the Department of Industry. And we looked after a whole range of different government programs. So many of them came from the Department of Industry, which include the R&D tax incentive, accelerating commercialization. We ran a whole series of structural adjustment programs. We ran the clean tech programs under the Rudd government. Um, but we also looked after programs for other agencies as well. So we were really seen as a program delivery unit. And it was a fascinating experience because I was able to use what I'd learned in my science degree. So that kind of um, curiosity, the analytical component, that critical thinking, um, but apply it to grants management. So I think the R&D tax incentive was one of my favourite programs because um, it gave us such a diversity of different projects that we could look into. Um, I think my you know, two highlights for me were diving into a project on bucket reclaimers on mining sites. Um, and the project was really around how you could use LIDAR sensing to improve the reclaim rate for these bucket reclaimers. Um, and I just remember, first of all, reading this application and only understanding about half of the words that were written in it because it was just a sector I'd never heard anything about. 
Um, but then slowly diving into, well, what does this mean and how does this work? And really being able to, to dive deep into a sector I'd never heard of. That one was fascinating. Um, and then the other, or probably my favorite project to look into, um, was I had an application from a company who had designed an underwater 3D camera. And they'd had to do testing in Tonga because they needed really high quality of water environment. So like really good depth budget is what they talked about to be able to capture the right 3D angles for this camera, which was then ultimately used in, I believe, IMAX theaters. Um, so I just, I loved that program because any day you could dive into these wildly different research projects and you've got such an incredible cross-section of the innovation that happens in Australian businesses. Um, so it was a huge eye-opening moment for me, realizing that I could still have what I wanted in terms of that science and, and research perspective on life and my career, but I could look at it from a business perspective and I could actually engage with these businesses and help them to grow their R&D capacity by accessing things like the R&D tax incentive and other really fantastic programs. So yeah, that was a really exciting time. And we were talking before we started recording, I think this is one of the times when it's quite advantageous to be part of a state like Tasmania because it was a small state office for Oz industry and that meant that everyone kind of got to do a bit of everything. Oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah, so there were five of us that were grants program managers. Um, we called ourselves customer service managers. Um, and yeah, because of that, it meant we worked across every program. We ran a structural adjustment program in Tasmania um, when the Guns Pulp Mill closed down. And so that was also fascinating because it was really about trying to um, support jobs and economic growth in Tasmania. And so we got to work with a lot of different companies on, you know, what are the pathways to unlock growth? Um, but yeah, it meant rather than working in a really big office um, where maybe I would have had a very small area of expertise that I focus on, um, it meant I got to work across Tasmanian industry. I got to meet so many different businesses, learn about the incredible things that happen in um, actually what is a highly innovative state. I don't think we share enough, you know, and I'm sure this is not just Tasmania, I'm sure it's everywhere, but I don't think we share enough of the incredible work that happens in Tasmanian businesses. And some of the stuff was just incredible. Um, you know, there's companies like um, Tasmanian Therapeutic Proteins, for example, who run uh, essentially a farm in Cressy, which is kind of center of Tasmania, um, very, very rural area. And they run this big farm where they have sheep and donkeys and cattle. And what they do is they infect these animals with various human diseases or venoms, like the anti-venom is another big thing that they do. Um, they'll leave the animals for about two weeks to develop these um, antibiotic responses or um, anti-venom responses. And then after two weeks, they um, extract a small amount of blood and then extract the anti-venoms or the antibiotics. Um, and then they create medicines off the back of that. And, you know, it's incredible to think that that kind of really high tech um, medical application is happening on a farm in Tasmania. Just, yeah, incredible stuff. So I feel, I feel really grateful that I was able to go and get such a cross-section of the amazing stuff that happens in Tasmania. And I think it's fair to say you connected with some important mentors while you were at Oz Industry as well? I did, yeah. I had a couple of really fantastic mentors at Oz Industry, actually. But yeah, one in particular, um, Jeff Atkinson, he was our state manager. And I just so clearly remember him saying, you know, it's critical that you understand the policy objectives. Um, so we worked across a range of different programs, as I've said, um, and it can get it can be really easy just to kind of get into the day to day motions of delivering a program. But he always used to pull us back to 
you know, what are the objectives? Why are we actually delivering this in the first place? He said, you know, you need to read the legislation. You need to read the, um, the bill notes, um, the explanatory notes. You should even read the speeches that were delivered, delivered at the time to really understand what are the, the policy objectives of this program because that way you can move towards optimising for those impact objectives. Um, so I always found that really fascinating that we would start a new program but always from that perspective of, what are we actually trying to achieve in this program? Yeah. Seeing the forest, not just the trees. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. And I guess after this period with Oz Industry, you never really completely separated from the academic world. And you ended up back at the University of Tasmania managing a program called Sense T. Yes. And this became quite an interesting startup story in of itself. So can you tell us a bit about that journey back to the university and, and what your experiences of the Sense T program was? Yeah, definitely. So um, that came up through actually another mentor that I had through Oz Industry, um, Amanda Castre. So she had been one of our deputy state managers at Oz Industry and had been a really strong mentor for me just from a career perspective. She had moved into UTAS and let me know that there was this opportunity to be the research manager for the Sense T program and would I be interested in? That was a really fabulous introduction. Um, so I was very interested. The Sense T program was funded through uh, the Tasmanian Government Department of State Growth. And we were funded to look into IoT and how it could transform Tasmania. So the benefit of being in Tasmania is that it's an island. So you have nice defined boundaries. And so the concept was, you know, if we can put sensors on all sorts of different things in Tasmania, um, then we can start to understand what does the interconnectedness of all things look like? You know, how, how are things actually really interacting and playing off and, and influencing each other? And so we ran the program across a whole range of different sectors, which included transport, tourism, finance, agriculture, aquaculture, you know, a huge range of different sectors. And we worked with the researchers in the University of Tasmania to design novel sensors and then also the data analytical capabilities on the back end to get really good insights out of the data that we were generating. Some of my favourite projects in that program, um, there was a, a project called Aerator, which was run through Menzies, which is the UTAS health research organisation. So Tasmania has a really good network of air quality sensors. And on top of that, through the program, we also developed a series of sensors which looked into pollen sensing. So we had about, I think it was about eight different types of pollen that could be sensed using these pollen sensors. And what we did was we created an app called Aerator, which tracked um, particulate matter, pollen, all sorts of different things to do with air quality. But the really exciting thing was the citizen science that came off the back of it. So any person in Tasmania, and in fact, you can still download it today, could download this app called Aerator. And if you had respiratory issues, so asthma or some other health issue, what you could do is you could go into the app and say, I'm having a coughing fit, I'm sneezing, I'm you know, struggling to breathe right now. You could give it your symptoms and then the app would start to learn based on what it was reading from the air quality sensors, what you were triggered by. And then it would actually start to send you alerts. So it would say, you know, Leo, I really don't think you should go into Glenorchy today. There's quite a lot of particulate matter, which you're sensitive to. And so you should stay away or you should keep your windows closed or, you know, so it would actually be giving you that interactive information mm. about your own health based on what's happening yeah. in the environment, which was just phenomenal. 
And that reciprocity with the data, like giving something back to the, the users, mm. meant they were more engaged with actually feeding you their information about their conditions. Exactly. And... Yeah. So building this wealth of information about the respiratory health of the users. On top of that, we looked at things like sensors on fish. Um, so, you know, we, we looked at so many different things in terms of the sensing applications. And what we did was we brought them all together into what we called a data lake. And then we came up with a lot of insights around the management of massive data sets. So some of the early learnings that we had were, you know, you really need to have data labeling and communications protocols worked out right at the start. You can't collect data and throw it into a big blender and be like, let's see what happens. We were getting caught up with really little things like the measurement system. What are we choosing metric? I don't know. We have to make a decision because when you start to combine those data sets and you've got different measurement systems without some kind of protocol, it's completely useless. There's no way to compare. So between 2015 and 2016, Claire was leading the Sense-T program delivering IoT sensors across Tasmania. But at the same time, the former director of this program, Ros Harvey, was converting one of those exciting technologies into a company of her own. It's a startup journey that has its own ups and downs and perhaps one we'll have to cover in the future. But for today, it's important to know that Claire was ultimately hired by this company as one of its early employees. And while Claire was not a founder herself, she was certainly close enough to the action to see this company grow from the ground up. So for my next question, I asked Claire what she learned from this experience in the world of startups. Um, look, I think anyone who's worked in a startup will know that it's hugely energy intensive. It's one of the most exciting places to be because everything is new and everything is being tested and you're building everything from the ground up and it consumes your whole life. You know, you get so excited about this new thing and you're kind of eating your business for breakfast and then, you know, thinking about it as you go to bed in, in the evenings. It was an incredible place to learn. I don't think I've ever learned so much in such a short amount of time. The pace was just so fast. We were engaging with clients globally and having these incredible conversations with the likes of Microsoft and Bosch and you know all these huge companies. I was so lucky with the founder, Ros Harvey, to go through two cap raising rounds with her, um, which was incredibly eye-opening for me. Um, she was just an absolute force at generating funding. And during my time there, these two cap raising rounds were highly successful. And she was able to raise millions of dollars from various different really big partners. And it was just amazing being with her on the day-to-day -day basis and learning how she was doing that like massive corporate engagement. Um, and so my role was really, at, you know, it was BDM. So it was around looking for those innovative pathways to sell our products, which was interesting at the time. So it was still quite early in the in the life of IoT, this concept of, you know, Internet of Things. And we were looking at taking microclimate sensing into the agriculture sector, which is a reasonably conservative sector and was still very new to the idea of transitioning from more manual processes to technology-driven processes. And there's a real apprehension as well because there's a huge amount of innate knowledge in our farmers and they do have incredible data sets in their minds and um, they're able to really instinctively track weather patterns and think about, well, what should I plant based on the type of year that I think I'm going to have? And so there's a real apprehension in moving to a data-based system. And so 
we really tried to speak to farmers about this is not about replacing farmers. It's really about increasing the amount of data that you have to make an informed decision. So Roz was fantastic in the way that she used to describe that. Um, She always used to say it's about creating greater decision-making capacity for people who are really time poor. But she was always about putting the farmer right at the centre, making sure this was about empowering their decision-making capacity. This was never about moving to automation. But yeah, it was it was phenomenal. I'm so grateful for my time in a startup and the yield are doing incredible things these days. They're absolutely kicking goals. I think they've got about 40 employees now. You know, they're doing really, really great things. But I'm just so grateful to have had that experience. Re- literally ground up, having to build everything in the business, watching someone as incredible as Roz, who is just so energetic. Um, I don't know where she gets her energy from. She is incredible. But yeah, doing all that work to engage those um, really incredible corporates to back the program and building that level of trust with um, the investors, with the key customers, with the likes of state departments of agriculture. Uh, Yeah, it was just phenomenal. Yeah, it's a really great experience you've had there with the yield, Claire, because I think a lot of government and research programs have this aspiration to support startups and innovation and research translation but very few of the administrators in those programs have the lived experience of having started a company themselves. Do you think that that's something that's missing in the policy landscape? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge. And I think when you think about our legislative environment, we don't currently support that journey. You know, there are very few programs that help startups get up off the ground. And particularly when we're talking about research translation, you know, there's incredible data and incredible IP that's coming out of our universities but there's a serious like funding gap when you think about universities for example there's a huge amount of IP really valuable IP that comes out of our universities but as soon as it hits that point of commercialization we completely lose any access to funding that might support the commercialization of those amazing technologies and there's good reason for this so The thing that I have heard a lot in my government engagement um, is really this concept of nine out of 10 startups fail. And this is something that we're well aware of um, because there are so many challenges in getting them up and running. And so there are real challenges in investing in startups because it could be seen that you're just throwing money away on 90% of the failures just to find that one that will succeed. And I mean, you know, you would know this through venture capital and, you know, angel investing. It's really hard to find the unicorn that's actually going to do really well. So understandably, the government is quite apprehensive about investing in startups. But I think what we miss in that assessment is that nine out of 10 startups might fail, but that founder is typically going to bounce through several failures and then find the success. And so the question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we support the founder? Maybe not the business itself, but the incredible people that are coming out of the research network or the entrepreneurs that have worked their way through the commercialization process. How do we take what they've learned in that process and what they've forged through the fire of the challenging commercialization environment? How do we supercharge that and say, okay, what you've learned here, let's help you to do better next time. So I think there's a huge gap in Australia at the moment just around, you know, that translational funding. Uh, And it's something we really have to consider because we're losing a lot of incredible innovation because we're not supporting the Valley of Death. (laughs) 
So through her role as the business development manager for the Yield Technology Solutions, Claire was involved in the establishment of a new cooperative research centre, which is a government program designed to bridge the gap between research and industry. As a founding partner of the Food Agility CRC, Claire, Roz and the whole team at Yield had the ability to help shape the research agenda of this new cooperative research centre. It was a task that Claire jumped into headfirst and arguably one she hasn't stopped thinking about ever since. For my next question, I asked Claire how she went from being a startup employee to a leader in the Food Agility CRC. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my experience with the Food Agility CRC started because the Yield Technology Solutions was one of the founding industry partners of the Food Agility CRC. And so I was able to see the bid process as an industry participant um, and really watch the way that Roz was trying to optimise our engagement in the CRC to suit the commercial objectives of the Yield Technology Solutions. And when the bid was successful, they needed someone to come and help set up the program. So Mike Bryars, who was the CEO, asked me if I would come and join for three months just to get some of the initial paperwork in place and get the program up and running. Um, and yeah, three months turned into five years because um, I just loved it. It felt to me like a return back to my Oz industry days. And that kind of government program management is something that I've always really enjoyed doing. So um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I went back to Roz and I said, you know what, I think I'm actually going to stay. Um, this is really good fun. So um, Food Agility was a really fascinating experience because I got to see the Cooperative Research Centre from inception, right from the birth. And the objectives of the CRC were fantastic. It was really about how do we take data science, sensing technology, um, you know, all of this incredible knowledge that we're generating in the research sector around using those technological innovations to grow food better. So understanding that our climate is only becoming more variable as we move forward and so many of the decisions that farmers make are really based on long-term weather predictions uh, and you might plant your crop at the start of the year thinking you're going to have a certain amount of water availability and um, that could change really rapidly and you could lose your profitability almost overnight with an extreme weather event. So how do we use these technologies, the sensing, the data analytics to help farmers to grow food better, particularly in the face of climate change? Um, so it was a really very, very purpose-driven organisation. Um, I think the challenges that we had in those early days were really trying to come to grips with the actual administration of a CRC. Um, so we were lucky that Mike Breyers, our CEO of the time, had come from the capital market CRC. So he had some experience in running a CRC. He'd been there for a few years. But still, there's not a lot of like there aren't frameworks that are provided. There's not a lot of structure that's dictated to a cooperative research centre. And um, really it's up to that cooperative research centre to set themselves up as they see fit. So as meets the expectations of the partners and the objectives of the program. And so it technically means that you're a startup business. So you have to go through all of the mechanisms of establishing a bank account, getting all of your HR protocols in place, you know, all of that kind of administration work but your partners expect you to get off the ground straight away. So you're a startup that has a lot of money and you need to spend it very quickly without any of the frameworks in place. So it took us about 18 months to really get to a point where we knew how we were going to deliver this program. And 18 months is far too long to leave partners waiting for projects to get up and running. And so we had to put together some fast track projects 
over that time while we're trying to get established. And that can be a real challenge because those projects are not necessarily set up in a way that you want to run future projects, but you're then setting a precedence. So yeah, it was really challenging trying to deliver on the objectives of all of these highly enthusiastic partners who had signed on to the CRC because of the alignment with purpose, but then also meeting all of the administrative requirements of actually establishing the program correctly. It's really interesting because there's, there's so much thought and effort that goes into planning a CRC and a CRC bid and so much probity from the government in deciding which CRC to award it to, yet still after all of that process, it's not clear to the executive when you know, day one comes, how to set it up. It feels like there's something missing almost in the that yeah. process. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that comes from the fact that a lot of CRCs are established by teams that haven't run CRCs before. And that's a great thing because mm. we need this new blood. We need these fresh ideas. You know, so we definitely want that to encourage, you know, new people to come into the program and really help to expand the way that we could be running these programs. But I think that the really successful CRCs that have got up and running very quickly they come to the, to the table with a really good understanding of how they're going to run their program, which is typically based on previous experience. So Future Fuels obviously came from the Energy Pipeline CRC. And the great thing about that is they were able to design a program of work under the banner of Energy Pipeline and then immediately transition into it. So um, Future Fuels is by no means the only example of this. There are many CRCs where they have done that prior planning and they've really sat down and thought about what could a program of early investments look like? What are the leverage rates going to look like? What, what is it going to look like to actually have these multi-party agreements in place? What do the IP expectations look like? There are many CRCs that have done great work in setting that up right from the start based on their prior understanding. But yeah, typically speaking, a CRC gets funded based on really strong impact objectives, but not necessarily by having a clear idea of how the program will actually run. It's really interesting. And you worked your whole way up to the COO of the Food Agility CRC. And by that point, you kind of were managing the organization in its totality. Did your perspectives on the CRC change as you went from a project manager to an investment manager to a COO? Yeah, I think because I, I had come in at the ground level at that CRC and there were only three of us when I first started at Food Agility. It was um, me, the CEO, Mike Briars, and our COO at the time, Dave Tomlins. And so we really built this program together. And so because I'd been there from the start, I did have a real sense of ownership throughout the program. And even as I transitioned into different roles, um, I still felt that real you know, sense of purpose and sense of ownership from, from what we had in the early days. And in fact, it was something that I had to continuously come and reflect back on as we had really fantastic new people join the team with really big new ideas. You know, there's a sense of like, but this is not what we started with, you know, and so you have to kind of allow that you know process of actually like accept these new ideas and and yeah and so that could be a real challenge but um no it's an interesting question definitely my perspective in terms of our commonwealth objectives did change over time maybe it matured over time because as COO in that 2IC position, it then became my responsibility to make sure that we were meeting all of our legislative contractual objectives. And so that became much tighter for me, just making sure that our program was actually set up to deliver on those expectations. Um, whereas maybe as a portfolio director, I had slightly more freedom in terms of what we could do around engaging and um, and a bit more innovation. So maybe maybe I became a bit more conservative, which possibly isn't the exciting answer that you're looking for. 
but yeah, it was, it was a fascinating journey. I, I learned a lot over the process. And you talked about, I guess, your sense of ownership and having seen this one from day one, which is probably an interesting contrast to where you're at now when you've mm. transitioned from this CRC that you helped establish to taking ownership of one that's already operational in the SmartCrete CRC. I guess, can you tell me how that, that opportunity came to you uh, and how you found migrating into a, a new CRC? Yeah, well, um, I was approached by a recruiter, actually, um, Ruth Hayes. She's fantastic and asked if I would be interested in applying. And I have to say it was a really big question for me about not the role. I thought the role sounded really exciting, more the question of transitioning to an entirely new sector. So I think the sectoral thread that I had had all the way through my career to that point was a fairly strong focus on the agricultural sector. Um, and I had really great relationships with our partners through food agility, but then also more broadly um, through my experiences at Sense T and, you know, some of the other fantastic businesses that I engaged with over, over that time um, with the yield as well. And so I found that really challenging thinking about this would be a sectoral change. So this would be starting at the bottom again and having to build networks from the bottom. But I loved the idea of being able to take what I'd learned at Food Agility and some of the challenges that I saw in terms of research industry collaboration and using that to actually design and deliver a program. Um, so I was really excited about that opportunity. So I thought, you know what, go for it. You, you know, you may as well at least interview at this level and see what that looks like. Um, and I had a really fantastic time through the interview process um, and really very positive engagement with the board. And I thought, yeah, this, this sounds like a really fun opportunity. So kind of dove headfirst into it. Um, and yeah, I did find it was a challenge, but also really, um, really interesting process learning about a new sector from the ground up. Um, so I don't think before I started, I could have told you what the difference between cement and concrete was. I think I probably thought they were the same thing. Um, I also don't think I could have pointed confidently to concrete on the street and said, that is concrete. Um, so I had very, very little understanding of the sector, um, of you know the entire construction process. And so it was really a question of building my knowledge from ground up. Um, but I think the other thing, you know, which you mentioned is the fact that I'd come in two years after this CRC had been founded. So one of the big things for me was making sure that I was very um, sensitive to the people that had come before me in understanding the objectives of the CRC. So when I was meeting with our key partners, I just made sure to sit and listen and not tell them what my thoughts were because I was essentially taking their ownership, you know, their baby, their CRC, and trying to make something new and exciting with it um, and so I didn't want to be seen as someone just coming in and changing everything unnecessarily so I wanted to be very sensitive and listen to the objectives that our partners had so that was a fascinating experience um, again learning a new sector it's funny I, I had originally thought that agriculture was an incredibly conservative sector um, I now believe that construction is an even more conservative <laughs> sector um, so it's a really interesting space to be playing. And I think that question of how do we unlock industry research collaboration is even more important here in the construction sector, where we do see much lower risk appetites, much more conservatism. And for good reason, you know, we do want our infrastructure to be safe and we want it to last. 
But that question of how do you encourage innovation and more blue sky thinking and, you know, opening yourself up to these new products and processes, which might be, you know, not untested because obviously research is all about testing, but, you know, novel. I think that's even more important in the construction sector than agriculture, where the ag sector, I think, is a little bit more mature in their engagement with research. And they have really fantastic research facilities and, and services available, like the research and development corporations, which exist for all of the different ag sectors. Um, I don't think we see that as much here in the construction sector. So SmartCrete is in the right place at the right time to really help the construction sector to move to a decarbonised future. Yeah, I, I was noting that decarbonisation is now one of the kind of main threads of the SmartCrete CRC. And you mentioned there a bit about kind of regulation and conservatism. When we're proposing new aggregate mixes and new concrete formulations, how do you as a CRC see yourself advocating for that being allowed and adopted within the sector? Do you have a, a policy role as well as a research role? Yeah, that, that is a really interesting question. And I think a, a number of CRCs really grapple with this concept of, are we supposed to be facilitating policy level discussions? I believe we are. I think that research not only has a role in informing the way that industry works, it also has a huge role in informing policy. And when we think about Australia's net zero journey, it needs to be policy-led. We need legislative controls in terms of how we manage delivery against Australia's pretty ambitious net zero targets. I like the idea that we in SmartCrete can be creating evidence-based research um, to support evidence-based policy. So yeah, I do think we have a real role in that. In terms of the adoption of new sustainable materials, there are some real challenges that we have to consider here. Our infrastructure environment, we certify bridges for 100 years, buildings for 50 years and roads for 40 years. So we certify these structures to last for a really long time. And so when we're thinking about bringing in novel concrete products, as an example, but we've only been testing those products for, let's say, five to 10 years, how do we know how those concrete products are going to perform over 40, 50, 100 years? So we do need to find new ways to collect evidence that really demonstrates that they are going to perform as we would expect. And at the moment, the testing that we have available to look at that kind of, you know, accelerated aging is all built around a cement-based concrete mix. So carbonation is one of those tests that we look at to think about the long-term performance. Carbonation actually requires cement as part of the chemical process to determine whether or not it's going to last. And when we think about new sustainable concrete mixes, what we're talking about there is reducing the cement component and bringing in what we would call supplementary cementitious materials. Um, fly ash and slag being good examples there. Those are industrial byproducts from other sectors, coal-fired power stations, aluminium and steel smelting. Um, and so what we're trying to do is replace the cement with those supplementary cementitious materials. But if all of our accelerated aging testing protocols rely on cement to give us effective data, how can we be sure of the performance of these new sustainable products over a long period? So I think there's a real role for SmartCrete to work with industry and research to design new testing protocols. If we want to move to an evidence-based system, we need a way to collect the right mm -hmm. evidence and to build that assurity that those products will actually do what they're supposed to do. This is really interesting to me when you talk about these things that they're almost becoming blue sky research at this point because you're talking about building new testing methodologies to prove 
you know, extended aging to then validate a new policy objective and regulation framework to then have the commercial impact. How do you sell those type of studies to industry partners when there is such a long chain before you actually get to the commercial reality? Yeah, it's a real challenge. I guess the, the answer to that is at the moment we can't not do this work. You know, we're already seeing that legislation is moving towards enforcing our net zero targets. Um, we've seen the safeguard mechanism was updated just a couple of months ago to increase the penalties for um, scope one yeah, process emitters. Um, and so there are three cement companies which fall under that who have to pay penalties under the safeguard mechanism. Those penalties are increasing. So we're in a position right now where we have to respond. We have to be thinking about what are the next generations of concrete that are going to meet the net zero requirements. But it is a real challenge. You're right. I mean, when we're talking long term, you know, how do you get people to engage in that really forward thinking research agenda? And I think geopolymers is a really interesting one for us to look at as an example. So in Australia, we've been studying geopolymers since the 1990s. It's been a long term exercise. We've done incredible durability tests. You know, so there's a wealth of knowledge and we're talking more than 30 years worth of research, which has been done in that space. In fact, almost 40 now. But yet, only in May this year, um, did we release a technical specification on geopolymers. So this is through Standards Australia. This is the very first step, which would actually allow for people to specify for geopolymers in their infrastructure projects. So we're talking 40 years worth of research to get to the point where we have a technical specification, which isn't a standard, by the way. The standard is the next level up. A tech spec is one level below that. Um, it's taken us that long to get to that point. So a real challenge that we have is when we start to look at these new generations of supplementary cementitious materials or concrete additives, like biochar is a good example. You know, there's a whole lot of work that's being done in lots of different agricultural products, which could be converted, a lot of different circular economy waste products. The challenge is if we start researching those today, is it going to take us another 30 years to get enough evidence to be at a point where we can say, yes, we're willing to adopt this in some level of a standard? Because that's a real challenge because 2030 is absolutely not 30 years away, neither is 2050. So when we think about the fact that Australia needs to be net zero by 2050 and we use 30 million tonnes of concrete per year and that's not looking like it's going to slow down, we don't have time to be doing mm. these enormous research projects. So, yeah, I think there's a range of things that we need in this sector, the testing methodologies being one but a huge range of other things that really have to all come together to help us to decarbonise the construction sector. And probably a risk appetite too from, from all people, from the government, from industry partners and from researchers to, to push through these, these yeah. barriers quickly. Absolutely. Which is a really tricky one, um, particularly in the construction sector. I think there are a couple of sectors, health, construction, where as consumers, as you know, citizens, we do have a fairly low risk tolerance. You know, we do want to make sure that our concrete infrastructure survives. Um, and in fact, the failure of concrete infrastructure is catastrophic and, you know, has the potential to do incredible damage. So risk appetite is an interesting one to talk about, just thinking about what do we expect as citizens in Australia. Um, and I guess the expectation is that you're, you're going to be inside safe mm. structures. So... What I've found in my engagement with this sector is we're really driven primarily by performance. 
in terms of choosing products that we want to use in our construction sector, very closely followed by or sometimes exceeded by cost. And then that concept of sustainability to this date is still a nice to have. It's not one of those top priority issues which is really driving our investment in new materials. Great. Well, we're running out of time, but I want to wrap up with one question around basically advice to, to researchers or even to your younger self. If we can take you back to those days of honours when you're doing your research science and thinking about a career for yourself, what would you have liked to have heard or been told to, to help you navigate this career into the research industry translation space? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I would really have loved to have heard more about the transferable skills that I was building as part of my engagement with the university. Universities are just such incredibly rich learning environments where you get huge opportunities to trial things in a controlled environment. You know, it's a safe space to really test and build new ideas, which is absolutely incredible. And I guess what we don't necessarily value coming out of the university environment is we don't value those softer skills that you learn as part of that process. So I guess I would encourage all people who are working either within the research sector or who are currently going through their education process themselves to really be thinking about what are those additional things that you're learning as part of this process that make you highly valuable in industry. Because there are so many things. It's your problem-solving abilities, it's your analytical skills, even the customer service skills that you're building understanding what is it that you're trying to deliver for and you know and why so I guess I'd be looking for those opportunities as you deliver on your research program or as you undertake your education you know really be thinking about what are the things that are transferable what are the things that you love doing and how could that translate into greater impact for Australia in general well Claire Tubulitz it's been a fantastic chat thanks for joining us here on the Lab Notes podcast thanks so much Leo Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organisations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now. So until next time, keep inventing.